0: Emergency Traffic Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Emergency Traffic Podcast where we talk about firefighter and paramedic line of duty deaths to learn from these tragic events and potentially prevent them from happening in the future. I'm Paul and today I'm joined by my co-hosts Dirk and Denny. First of all, an apology to all our listeners, uh, we, or I, took a long hiatus over the summer uh, since our last episode that was recorded in May, but we're back now. Thank you all for your patience and hope you look forward to uh, listening to new episodes as we produce them over the winter. You know, summer is so short in Canada, it's hard to break away and, and, and do recordings when uh, we're busy camping and traveling and all that kind of stuff. Dirk and Denny, how's it going today? What's new?
1: It's uh, Well, it's been an interesting summer. Oof, uh, those yeah. who think there's no climate change occurring are not paying attention, uh, not getting into what's causing it, but it's definitely happening. We had an unusually dry spring, and as a result of that, there were some, for, for Nova Scotia, massive wildland fires. And uh, the one that I was concerned with happened in the uh, wildland urban interface, and I was concerned with it because it burned out my subdivision, and we lost uh, one-third of our homes in our subdivision, and we were the last stop. Uh, the fire didn't continue because uh, the sun went down, the wind changed, and it got cooler and more humid. But there was a crossover. The temperature was pushing 30, and the humidity was in the 20s and teens, and there were high winds, and it was a conflagration. And uh, um, there was a, a lot of issues with uh, emergency response communications, uh, evacuation uh, routes, and so forth. Anyways, so we've been recovering since then, uh, fixing our home. Uh, I have a wooded lot. I, I lost probably three quarters of an acre of uh, forest and wild land off of my lot. My house was fine because I followed fire smart, and I had my fire smart boundaries around my house. I had my gutters covered. I did not leave combustibles around. All my uh, all my uh, my my bushes and stuff that were close to the house were, were not evergreens, and I had no mulch that wasn't stone. So my house survived, but I got some fantastic video all around, and unfortunately uh, my video shows 10 houses all around my house burning to the ground. It's been a nightmare.
0: Amazing. uh,
1: Dealing with the insurance companies, dealing with the recovering. And, uh, I still haven't got my siding fixed and we're what, five months after. Interesting
0: to note, to build on that one, Denny. Thank you for sharing that, um, is, uh, the national Institute of science and technology just released, uh, recommendations for municipalities on public alerting evacuation and sheltering in place uh they just released a report based on the campfire or in paradise california a few years ago
1: high fatality fire
0: right uh 96 dead nineteen thousand structures something like that but Zero they were luckily they, they, they released recommendations on that uh that you know go exactly to what you're saying the public alerting the evacs and and the other thing of course is that one in hawaii Lanai. high uh, where that one house built in the 50s survived. But the trick is, like you said, there was no combustibles around the home. There was no uh, combustible mulch. It was all rock. The soffits and eavesdrops were, were resistant to fire and the house survived. So, I mean, yeah. it can be done, but it takes a little bit of effort
1: and knowledge. And, and my, my residents, uh, my neighbors around me, um, Fire Smart, city wasn't promoting it. Right. Province wasn't promoting it. I mean, it was out there. You know, but you had to go and self-find it yourself. There was, there was very little activity in that area. And even shockingly now, there still isn't really much. That's and amazing. So, so we're, we're pressuring the governments, both municipal and, and uh, provincial, uh, to get the residents more involved in analyzing what, what was good and what was bad about this response. And uh, so far, there's been dead silence and or pushback. So um, this is not the first wildland fire that's happened in this municipality. It is at least the sixth. I was involved in a major post-incident, a review of one of those fires. And my view of that is, is that despite the 11 years that have passed since, uh, the number of internalized lessons um, have, have, is low. And uh, the same thing has is repeating itself. And I think that's the most discouraging part about it is if you don't learn from your experiences, you're gonna relive them. It's just a matter of time. And we had no fatalities but we lost 150 homes. One subdivision alone lost a hundred. So it was extremely bad. One road in one road out and it was a nightmare. So there was an
0: uh, article a couple of weeks ago, somebody was talking, I think it was in Alberta here somewhere is yeah. Okay. So we got the evacuation thing kind of figured out in Canada. There's been all kinds of wildfires this year and lots of evacuations and, and uh, no, no fatalities, but that's not enough. We need to figure out how to protect the community so we don't have these huge losses it's costing yeah. the economy and the emotional strain and the people and everything yellow knife was it yellow knife right that got evacuated yeah. and and they're saying people aren't aren't moving back you know yeah. just like fort mac they lost a whole bunch of population because yeah. they're not going to do this again so we need to yeah. work on that
1: yeah but you know people have have their emergency plans and evacuation plans in place and they think they're adequate like for instance there's an elementary school. And their plan is to bring in a bunch of buses and, and transport the kids away. I said, you know, that's, I was at a meeting public meeting and I said, you know, that's, that's a good plan. However, um, you need to know in advance that the fire is going to be heading your way in order for you to get the buses in. And then the buses have got to fight the traffic to get in and out again. It says, you know, when you're not telling people that they're in danger, they're in the path, then how are they supposed to enact their plans? Yeah. It's like, You notice when your backyard's on fire, you know, that's too late.
0: I guess we need an episode on this, huh, Dirk?
2: It <laughs> hey, it sounds like it, yeah. That'd be just yeah, just talking about all that. I mean, we yeah. had why we had uh, Slave Lake in Alberta. We had uh uh Fort McMurray. right? Uh, I mean plus the flooding uh, in Calgary and in the high river. Right, uh, all these major events, and then uh, I'm not sure if we actually learn lessons from that.
1: Right, and you look at the Northwest Territories, evacuating, and you're looking at a 24-hour drive out, and so you know you've you've suddenly got every resident north of you is is coming into your corner store and gas station because they're running for their lives. Uh, did you plan for that and made sure you get extra fuel? The answer to that is no. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> Good, good. Yeah, well, no, sorry Anyways. for your summer. And then you had a hurricane after that, too.
1: Uh, we've actually had two hurricanes. Two uh, hurricanes Hur- now. Hur- Hurricane Lee, which uh, ripped a bunch of shingles off uh, my uh, my uh, my ridgeline vent, so I repaired that. And then we just had uh, uh, Tropical Storm Philippe, which just came through uh, last weekend, which was luckily a overbilled, underrated event.
0: Moved to Nova Scotia. Dirk, how about you? You had a busy
2: summer. Uh yeah, I yeah, I was was pretty busy. Um, I, I finished teaching the class there in uh, in June, end of oh, June. A recruit class, right? A recruit class, yeah. And then, uh, so that was a beautiful spring for us. And I missed all that because I was just busy. So I didn't go camping. I uh, didn't even move my trail all of my yard. So uh, oh, that's like a sad. Bummer. But uh July August yeah we went to uh Spain and Portugal so that was a very uh, relaxing very relaxing vacation uh it wasn't too hot up there because my wife picked that spot because it wasn't that hot (laughs) (laughs) while we had 28 30 I think the hottest day was 35 the south of Spain and Portugal was cooking at 45 degrees and uh, when we were heading out at the beginning of August, that the wildfires just started in the southern uh, southern part of Portugal. So, but we weren't affected by it. So, that was, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty nice. And then, uh, well, September hit and I was busy in the yard. And, uh, and then I got my promotion finally after 18 years. Captain, congratulations. <laughs> word, cap, junior, junior captain. Yeah, yeah. That's, part, that's the last promotion I'll get in my career. So, that's as good as it gets and uh yeah i'll i'll enjoy the ride for the next six, six years uh i just turned 54 so six more years on my exchange and uh yeah I'll go from there yeah. so I'm, yeah i'm looking f- i'm looking forward to the podcast and i hope we can get this done once a month at least and, and maybe taught, have that, yeah that's some courses
0: me. too what did you teach I, you a I did teach a couple ago.
2: courses yeah um i did teach uh if star 101 firefighter 101 um and then I, I went to a couple courses. I didn't teach. I uh, participated in an engine ops fundamental, fundamental course in the Rocky Mountain House. Uh, we had uh, um, Todd Edwards from Atlanta there, um, retired battalion chief, demoted captain, promoted, demoted, fired. It was an interesting That's story. A, <laughs> an engine
0: ops course, because Atlanta's got no engines. It's been all over the news. or short of trucks or something.
2: Yeah, so he's been retired. He's been teaching uh, mainly uh, host deployments. That's his shtick. And then we had Kyle Romagus from Texas, uh, Montgomery County. And he was teaching uh, host advancements, flowing. We had Jerry Herbst from Elkhart Brass. He was... uh, showing us how to do uh, hose and, uh, nozzle evaluations with, uh, you know, brass tacks and hard facts, brass tacks and hard right? facts. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. And then we had Brent Brooks from Toronto. Uh, he was 17 years on their high rise rigs and uh, we talked about high rise fires and procedures and how to use the 65 in a, uh, in a high rise setting and up, upscale, downscale. And so, yeah, it was super interesting to see this uh, flow below nozzle uh and the um well i think originally it's called cockloft nozzle but they want to call it opposing stream nozzle just so you don't limit the use just by the name um uh, but we played around with it, it was was fantastic like we talked we talked a lot about those uh cladding fires as well where you can use these uh or from uh the flanking or uh, if you're balcony over and you can get water into that apartment and so yeah it was uh, super interesting uh unfortunately uh, every single part of this this uh, conference could have been a whole conference by itself. It was kind of like you know, four hours high-rise training, uh, right? It was a little bit short, same with host advancements and uh, stretching. But, yeah, it was, was super interesting just to talk to these guys and hang out with them. And I got to drive them, actually. I got to pick them up from the airport, so I was kind of like starstruck. It was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and I'm gonna to go to Seattle here on uh, flying to Vancouver, and then drive down to Seattle on Sunday for the Pacific Northwest uh, Fools Conference. And uh, it's gonna be twelve presenters, three days. So it's gonna be
0: awesome. What's
2: fools? What's fools? Are you asking me? Or are you asking Denny? Yeah, asking you. <laughs> fools. People might not know what that is. It's uh the. Uh, Fraternal Order Fraternal of Leatherheads. Leatherheads, yeah.
0: Because the old helmets used to be leather. Well, some people still have leather helmets. But still, yeah. yeah.
2: And yeah. it's it's a great cause because they they're busy uh, fundraising at all the events and then they finance firefighters that can't afford to go conferences. So that's awesome. Yeah, awesome. Pretty, that's cool. Pretty cool. Uh, I I think there's only one or two fools chapters in Canada as far as I know. I know there's one in Ontario and I think there's one out west. But uh, right. Yeah. Cool. No, that's was, that's it. Short summer. <laughs> and I was busy camping. I did a little bit of teaching. I went uh,
0: down east and taught a ICS course in French, and then I went to Calgary and I taught an ICS course at uh, Can TF Two, which is the uh, Urban Search and Rescue team down there. And I've gone to Lakeland College here. The, uh, what's it called? The uh, Lakeland Emergency Training Center, and taught some uh, boring fire inspector courses. I know you guys aren't into those, but, uh, you know, evaluated new fire inspectors is what I did. Uh, and then lots of camping and we got a new dog, which has been fun over the summer. And so that's why I wasn't doing podcasting. And, and uh, congratulations
2: to our co-host Doug, who can participate today. Yes. Uh, he's got a, uh, new baby, finally a girl. <laughs> right. Right. So yeah, as, as I know, she's healthy. Mom is good. So, uh, yeah, hopefully, we uh, can get Doug back at some point here.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah, he's a little busy right now. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Well, that's great little catch up. So, okay, this week's incident. Uh, we're actually looking at two similar line of duty death events that occurred both in Ohio in october which i was just going through looking for podcasts and which one to do and then i saw that there was two similar incidents both in ohio in the same month one was in 1985 and one was in 2003. The 1985 incident doesn't have a lot of information. The fire reporting back in 85 was fairly minimal. So we're gonna do these two together. Uh is gonna talk about the eight, 1985 incident, and I'm gonna talk about the October of uh, 2003 incident, and that way you'll be able to keep in in your mind a little bit as to which one was which and uh dirk is going to interject with a good color commentary as we go if i I I, think plus i
1: was a firefighter in 1985 where you two guys were still in diapers
0: i i wasn't quite i started (laughs) in 86 i was a medic in 85 but i got my first basic firefighting certificate course or whatever in 86 in borden saskatchewan and uh you were how old then Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: was old enough to drink and smoke. Just saying. Uh, oh, really? Oh, okay. Well, 16 I, is legal. Legal age in Germany. I, I suppose,
1: oh, yeah. yeah. I was exactly. I was in my 30s, so I'll confess I remember hanging out
0: in your house when you were in university and wanting to play with all your uh, model ships in your bedroom or something. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah.
1: that was That was a long time ago.
0: It was. Far, far away. Okay, here we go. Go for it, Denny.
1: So uh, the, the, the incident that happened in 1995 happened on August the 27th, so late, later in the summer. And in that incident, three firefighters were killed when a burning silo exploded. The firefighters were at the time spraying water onto the fire from the top of the silo uh, when the explosion initiated and occurred.
0: Okay, the 2003 event happened in October as well. A 44 year old male firefighter and a 42 year old male firefighter were fatally injured by a silo explosion at a lumber company. So this wasn't actually a uh, uh, a farm silo, it was a lumber uh, company. And we'll find out more about it here as we go along. The victims had responded to a mutual aid call for their aerial, uh, which often happens in rural areas where not everybody has an aerial. And so you get a mutual aid call for their aerial uh, apparatus from a neighboring uh, volunteer department that was already on scene of the silo fire. I know here in Lacombe, our aerial used to go to other communities quite often, and before we had it, we had other communities coming here to fight uh, fires when we needed an elevating device. At the time of the explosion, victim number one was standing on top of the silo, and victim number two was in the aerial basket positioned beside the top of the silo. A third firefighter was also severely injured and hospitalized, was also standing on the top of the silo. Seven other firefighters were injured during the explosion, one of which required hospitalization.
1: So I'm just gonna talk a little bit about the fire departments that were involved in these incidents and first the 1985 uh, incident. Um, The victims in this uh, particular incident, uh, you remember that there were uh, three firefighters killed Um, They were all members of of the local volunteer fire department. On the day of the incident, the volunteer fire department had 22 members on their roster. Uh, The fire chief uh, was individually responsible for training and periodically conducted sessions concerning firefighting techniques and equipment. The Ohio Fire Service training manual was used at that time as a training resource and uh, no training was specifically received concerning fires in oxygen limiting silos. We'll talk more about what an oxygen limiting silo is as we go along.
0: Yeah, and I think reading between the lines of the report from 85, they were trying to say there was no certified training uh, because the fire chief was doing the training. But anyway, that'll come up here in the next one too. In 2003, the two volunteer fire departments that were involved in the incident uh, was again similar. Uh, The Incident Command Department, whose call it was, has 23 personnel, serves a population of about 23 to 2,500 people within a rural area of about 45 square miles. The department serves the community from a single station and receives the majority of its funding through the township, so municipally funded. The mutual aid department was a little bit bigger, had about 30 personnel, serves a population of 3,500 people in a residential and industrial area of about 17 square miles, so a smaller area with more population. They also serve from a single station and is funded through the city and the township. Both of the victims that passed away were members of this department. The training and experience, we have a little more information on the 2003 incident. Yeah, the victim number one had 14 years experience as a volunteer firefighter. He was certified by the state of Ohio as a firefighter level, one, level 1A. Level I'm not sure what 1A is, level 1. Maybe the first part of level 1, not, not a level 2, maybe. 48-hour course. Oh, okay. It was sort of a basic firefighting course. That's what I took back in 86. It uh, was sort of a one course. It taught you a little bit of everything, just enough to be dangerous. Uh, firefighters contains a portion of the requirements of NFPA firefighter level 1. Additional training included some confined space rescue, training in propane emergencies, and terrorism awareness. Victim 2 had 10 years experience as a volunteer firefighter. He was also certified as a volunteer firefighter 1A. It's sort of in Alberta here. used to be old like part 1, part 2, part 3 kind of thing was kind of your entry level. He had SCBA, a little bit of nozzles, a little bit of ladders. Um... Additional training, confined space, terrorism awareness, firefighter safety from farm emergencies, and public information officer and electrical emergencies. The uh, 2003 incident, we have a little bit of information about their equipment. The fire department initial dispatch response listed in the order of arrival was like engine 774 with a officer and four firefighters, equipment truck with five firefighters, another engine with two firefighters, a tanker with two firefighters or a tender, uh, chief or incident commander via their own personal uh, own vehicle, an assistant chief also in their own vehicle, a brush truck with an officer and a firefighter. The mutual aid department response included the aerial truck with the officer and firefighter, or three firefighters, Uh, two of which were our line-of-duty death victims on this call, an equipment truck with four more firefighters. And, of course, additional personnel from both departments arrived on scene in their personal vehicles, which, of course, is extremely common in in rural North America uh, where uh, more people come to the big call later on with their own vehicles if they miss the truck or don't want to take more trucks and stuff.
1: So the next bit of information we have on the 1985 incident is dealing with... uh with the structure itself. And uh, the silo that was involved in this incident was an oxygen limiting type, which means that the openings in the silo, so there'd be some at the bottom, some at the top, and possibly some on the side, um, were supposed to be sealed to limit oxygen from entering. So the design of the silo itself was concrete and slip formed. There's a couple different designs. You will see concrete plank and cast in place, concrete slip formed where the, where the form itself is is used to cast a ring and then it's slid upwards and another ring is cast and then it slides up and another ring is cast. So that's what they call slip form. So this particular silo was a concrete oxygen limiting design slip form. It was 76 feet in height and 20 feet in diameter. From my experience, pretty typical uh, dimensions. There were five rubber gasketed sealed hatches on the silo. Two were on the roof. One was on the side loading portal near the top. So near the roof, but just down over the side, where usually there's uh, an elevator or or a chute of some sorts that's used to, to load silage into the silo. And two were at the unloading portal at ground level. They can either be under the silo or on the side of the silo, depending on the design. At the time of the incident, silage was stored to approximately 12 feet from the base. So that meant that there was you know, 50, 60 feet of free space ab- above the top of the silage, and so the silage itself extended at a steep angle to approximately 40 feet up on the sides of the silo in a cone-shaped configuration. Remember, you load the silo from the top, so it doesn't drop into a nice smooth level layer. It it just kind of tapers in like a like a volcano and fills the, the bottom of the silo and up the sides. So the base uh, mount was 12 feet, and then there was about a 40-foot slope up to the uh, up to the loading hatch on this particular silo.
0: In 2003, the incident silo was located at a lumber company that employed about 60 full-time employees. The facility produced various wood products, including hardwood flooring and for bowling lanes, architectural millwork, roof trusses, and brooms. The silo was conduct constructed in 86 and was used to supply recycled plant material to an electrical boiler. The concrete silo was originally designed as an oxygen limiting silo but was later modified. The silo was approximately 70 feet high and 20 feet in diameter so about the same size as the other one. The base of the silo had two doors one on each side to access the auger pit in the the base where the uh, auger was used to unload the silo. The silo was normally filled with wood chips and sawdust from the plant. The roof of the silo had two round openings, each measuring about two feet in diameter. The silo was filled pneumatically as wood chips were blown in through a tube at the top of the silo through the center opening. The other opening had a cover that was not in place. On the day of the incident, the silo was filled to a depth of 21 feet with wood chips. According to the fire marshals report, the origin and cause of the fire was heat generated from the friction of a belt on a pulley at the base of the silos auger which ignited the combustible wood chips the fire had smoldered for several hours prior to the arrival of the firefighters fire marshal concluded that the explosion in the incident was a combination of events, including at minimum a backdraft with ignition of the fire gases, and then potentially a dust explosion of some degree. If everybody remembers, of course, any kind of dust, uh, you know, is, is a as is a combustible hazard any kind of dust is a combustible hazard in these silos and uh could you know the first explosion or the first event typically knocks all the dust off and then the vaporizes all those fine particles there's been numerous dust explosions there's a great podcast by the way called the uh the combustible dust or dust explosion podcast it's quite interesting too he talks about all these these events anyway and that's what happened there the uh Incident Command Fire Department had conducted annual pre-planning for the facility and routinely made one or two calls per year at the facility. So they probably had a lot of little fires in the facility. We had a similar facility uh, in some of the districts I've worked in as well. And often they wouldn't phone until it got really bad and then they would give you a call. And I kept telling them, guys, come on, don't don't hesitate. You're forty; they were forty-five minutes away out in the country. I said, call us first. You can always turn us around. It's just diesel fuel, uh, you know. But uh, they, you know, there was a problem. These calls included three fires in adjacent silos, small fires in the dust collection system, and there were no previous fires in this silo. One
1: one of the interesting uh, phenomenons about dust explosions is is that they're they're, they're really not a single event. Um, often, um, they're, 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 and I'm not talking about the initiating event, the initiating fire and the initiating explosion, but when you get a dust explosion, which is the combustion of the dust particles in the oxygen in the air, you will get you know, a, an overpressure event. And lots of times what that overpressure event will do is it will dislodge more dust. And there's, there's video out there showing this happening In buildings where you've got dust sitting on the top of trusses and on top of equipment and so forth and the first explosion disturbs all this dust throws it into the air and then you get the real dust explosion comes after that and that's usually massive and catastrophic so you'll typically hear these boom boom they'll be in that order and uh, so that's quite possibly what occurred so um, the the next information that we have on the 1985 incident is uh, relating to to what what had, was noticed and how the how the event went forward. So on August the 27th of 1985, the fire department arrived at the scene of the silo fire around 7 p.m. So in August 7 p.m. it's uh, still light. The fire had been noticed earlier in the day when the owners was. Owner saw wispy smoke coming from the top hatch on the silo. Three firefighters climbed to the top of the 76-foot silo using the access ladder that's on the outside of the silo. Um, A lot of these access ladders on silos, just by the way, are somewhat sketchy. They may or may not have safety um, cages around them, and they may or may not be in uh, condition to carry the weight of a fully equipped firefighter. So that's, you know, where they say step on the outside as you're going up on this little tiny rung that's about the size of Paul's little finger, then, then <laughs> you're, you you got to watch yourself. So anyway, three this brave your, firefighters. This
0: is your little finger talking, the PE the <laughs> e. guy going, I wouldn't get on that ladder.
1: <laughs> yeah, sometimes knowing too much is not good. <laughs> anyway, so three brave firefighters climbed to the top of the 76-foot-high silo using the access ladder on the outside of the silo. Lots of times these ladders will also cross over access hatches. And the rungs themselves are in the hatches, and the hatches are often wood. So keep that in mind. It's burning, remember? On top of the silo, they noticed that one of the hatches was open. So in an oxygen-limiting silo, that would not be normally the case. That hatch would be closed and sealed. After they opened the second hatch on the elevator, they began... After opening a second hatch on the elevator, which is where the loader is, they began the application of water into the fire using a one and one half inch line. And nowadays we would consider an inch and a half line as to be totally inadequate, fed by an inch and a half hose almost certainly in 1985. I know in 1985, we were transiting, uh, transitioning to inch and three quarter. And nowadays an inch and a half line is, is still often used in rural departments because they're trying to save water. This yep. is not probably the right place to be doing that. And using a straight stream nozzle. Good for them. Well, in things the... go
0: around. They went all the way through the fog nozzle and back to straight stream.
1: Well, straight stream is probably a good thing for, smoothboard. Um, for from a point of air entrainment. However, yes. we'll find out later that in fact, air entrainment was a major issue. In approximately 30 minutes, 3,000 gallons of water, which was the capacity of the two water tank trucks the tenders that were unseen had been applied to the fire. At this point, the water supply was depleted and the three firefighters retreated from the top of the silo. So they would have climbed back down. After a, a delay of approximately 15 to 20 minutes, the water supply was then replenished. The trucks re-arrived full of water. Probably no
0: port no porta tank in 85, maybe.
1: There was, but I'm not sh- I don't know if the attack pumper was using it. We don't have those details. So three firefighters once again positioned themselves at the top of the silo and continued fighting the fire while two other firefighters were at ground level applying water to the bottom hatch area. So at this point, it's, it, they were applying it to the area, not necessarily inside the silo, but to the hatch area. At approximately 7, 8 p.m., so this would be one hour after, after they had been um, arrived, uh, the, an explosion occurred. And the explosion lifted the concrete roof of the silo approximately four feet into the air. And as the roof began to break apart in large chunks while it was in the air, victims number one and two who were on the top of the silo fell off the silo. And the third firefighter fell into the burning silo. A fourth firefighter who was at ground level, so he'd be 72 feet below the top of the silo, sustained a broken leg when he was hit by a piece of flying concrete roof. You can only imagine the roof was going in all directions. So victim number three who had fallen into the silo was eventually removed from the silo through a hole that was subsequently cut in the side of the concrete silo 28 feet above ground. So clearly that didn't happen in a few minutes. All the casualties from the scene were transported, transported to the local hospitals. Don't know how long a run that would have been. Uh, two different coroners were involved in this incident due to the victims having been transported to different hospital districts. One coroner ruled that victim one, who had fallen off the roof um, and landed on the ground closest to the silo, had died due to injuries caused by the fall. The other coroner ruled that victim number two and three who had fallen into the silo, I remind you, died due to injuries caused by the explosion. Um, However, no autopsies were performed. So this would have been, I guess, just an external examination of the bodies. After the explosion, the silage collapsed to the 28-foot level. Remember, it was sitting at the 14-foot level, I think it was. Right, on the sides. Yeah, and you had this big uh, uh, cone of silage up the side. Well, This leveled it all out and it settled in at the 28 foot level. Remember, they said that they cut a hole in the side of the silo at the 28 foot level where the silage eventually ended up and uh, then retrieved firefighter number three, victim number three. So the initial indication on the investigation that the cause of the ignition was spontaneous heating of the silage. That's what started the fire. If you if you Google this, you will find out that if the um, if the moisture content of silage is too low, seems contrary, is too low, then spontaneous heating through um, degradation and fermentation will occur. Too and low, enough mo- and there's not enough moisture left to to, to quench it down. So I thought it was the other
0: other way around.
1: Well, it isn't. It isn't. But it's not not with silage hay. It's the huh. other way. But anyways. So, so with, with silage, it's got to be moist enough to not spontaneously combust. It will still heat as it degrades. However, it can't generate enough heat because of the humidity in there to actually cause a fire. So, but if it's drier than like old silage, for instance, like you put new silage on top of old silage, your new silage can ignite the old silage, for instance. There's all kinds of, which is why you really got to know what you're doing with these things anyways. Witnesses state that the bottom and top doors of the silo were open when the fire department arrived. In other words, the silo was ventilated. Right. It was open on top to let the heat and gases out and it was open on the bottom to let fresh oxygen in. Uh, oxygen limiting silos, um, not, not what you do. Um, so that presumably was done by the, uh, the personnel in charge of the silo. Uh, we think this was a farm. This would allow sufficient oxygen for spontaneous heating to occur and the silage was sufficiently dry for this action to take place. The explosion that had occurred was due to either a buildup of combustible gases from incomplete combustion or from a dust explosion or more likely a combination of the two. In either case, directing water into the top of the silo would have been an improper method for fighting this type of silo fire. In this incident, nothing should have been done to increase the level of oxygen inside the silo, both opening the top hatches to apply water to the fire and to training air within the water streams, increase the level of oxygen and put the gases and or dust into the explosive range. Additionally, water spray can place the dust into suspension, thereby increasing the risk of explosion. So if you've got a smoldering fire from a spontaneous heating so you're going to be generating a lot of incomplete combustion so you're going to develop you know smoke particles carbon monoxide and other components all of which are flammable gases and we've all been to structure fires and seen the smoke coming out the window and it, at a certain point it mixes with the surrounding oxygen and it ignites and you got this blowtorch so imagine that suddenly occurring inside the silo quickly causing a pressurized event causing that silage that was all up the side of the silo to fall down, creating a dust cloud. And then that cloud of dust igniting, blowing the top off the silo and subsequently causing the death of three, three firefighters who were in the wrong place at the wrong time.
0: Hey, Dirk, I want a technical rescue opinion on a rural call with very limited resources doing, uh, rescue through a concrete silo wall at 28 feet above ground obviously you're standing in the front end loaders or something yeah it's probably six inches thick like Denny's uh mentioning maybe thicker what do you think of that there you're a tr guy
2: it it would require a lot of specialized equipment um not sure if that small department would have that Um, you'd be
0: using farm equipment probably Right, whatever they. Yeah, have, you have. would have to do a
2: dirty breach, basically. Maybe <laughs> if you have a drill, you can you know drill pilot holes and then start start using a jackhammer or something like that. But yeah, it would require that. And in this case, I mean, the roof is already collapsed. I'm not sure what's still left above them. So that would be kind of the the, the, the um you know the risk the risk management there. It's like, what are we going to cause here? And what, what is this a recovery or is this a rescue? Yeah, See, um,
0: safety officer's nightmare.
2: Yeah, I, I like the dirty breaches because they're the fastest, right? <laughs> but you also don't want to, well, even if, if it's a recovery, you don't, don't want to, uh, right? You know, have stuff falling on, on on the firefighter. So yeah, yeah, it'd be yeah, it would be super difficult, especially building a platform. That's always a problem. Anything that's that's uh, elevated, uh, you can't really work heavy equipment over ladder. Uh, ladder truck with a platform. Would be ideal. I'm not sure if they had that available. That might have been another thing they could have done, right?
1: And imagine your mental state.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know,
1: this is an unsafe silo. Who knows what the structure is like? You got a buddy in there somewhere. The so chances of him surviving are, let's be honest, nil. He's inside a burning concrete silo. How long does it take to breach? He's got limited oxygen. We don't even know if they were packed up or not. I suspect they were not um so and 24 feet in the air 28 feet in the air how did they even know that's where the solid had ended uh thermal imaging cameras 85
0: no
2: really unlikely yeah. yeah
0: not through the concrete anyway you wouldn't know so you know
2: they were they were lucky that there were more or more fatalities because there were a lot of people standing around there right so uh, yeah yeah you know, from a technical like a uh, up point of view that like, yeah it was super difficult you know? wow
1: okay even today super difficult
0: yeah even today with more equipment yep actually my uh my niece had a a farm a barn burned. uh they had hay in the barn and her father my brother-in-law kept telling her to uh you need to get that hay out of here it's heating because the, the hay was the pile was breaking up you can see that there was movement and stuff going on and she tested it with her hay tester a few times and, no no it's fine it's fine and One morning they woke up and the barn's on fire. Turned out the battery was dead in the hay tester. Uh, But anyway, uh, dad was right. And uh, yeah, that's unfortunate. But I don't think she listens to the podcast, I hope. Uh, Anyway.
1: So hay testers and smoke alarms. Check your battery.
0: Right. Very good. Fire prevention week and all. Here we are. 2003, at about 06.50 hours in the morning, the lumber company supervised supervisor, directed a plant employee to check the silo because there was an odor of smoke in the vicinity. Employee went to the silo auger pit and quickly discovered the source of the odor. As he opened the access door, the auger pit was filled with light smoke and there was a red glow seen within the silo through the auger port. He quickly exited the pit, shutting the access door on his way out, reported to his supervisor that the silo was on fire. Three minutes later, they called 911 to report a fire in one of the silos. At 7.01, engine 744 en route with an officer, four firefighters. It arrived at the lumber company at 7.03, so not too far, only two minute response, quick, must be in town. The equipment truck also arrived and another engine and the tanker all arrived within a couple of minutes. The fire station was less than a mile away. Upon arrival, the firefighters observed light smoke coming from the top of the silo and moderate to white gray smoke through the bottom access doors. The engine was positioned in the parking lot on the east side of the silo and the crew pulled an inch and three quarter hand line, 44 millimeters for us Canadian folks. Um, I saw it was like metric week or metric day, a day or two ago or something. So anyway, uh, trivia. Uh, on the northeast side of the silo engines, the other engine was put on standby to act as a backup. The crews from engines, uh, both engines, entered the silo pit from the east. Two firefighters with an inch and three-quarter hand line inspected the auger pit and found some aerosol cans and an LP gas tank that they removed. Interesting. Aerosol cans, belt dressing, WD-40 maybe, something like that. Uh, LP tank, not sure why. The uh, Next, they shut off the circuit breakers for the electric power to the auger motor. Good, lockout, tagout. The auger access door had warped, opened, Due to heat and water was being sprayed in the opening the two other firefighters stood on standby on the east side with a charge inch and a half line um conditions within the auger pit were heavy smoke little visibility in high heat the metal auger access door was glowing red from the intense heat so they had a worker in here they were uh firefighters were successful in cooling down the metal burning wood chips began to fall from the auger access door and pile up on the pit floor. Incident command was concerned that the fire would spread to other areas of the lumber company by burning embers and wanted to aggressively extinguish the fire. Command wanted to inspect the fire conditions from the top of the silo. Since the silo did not have a cage on the external ladder, he determined that it would be unsafe for firefighters to climb to the top on the ladder. Good thinking. At 7.25, he requested an aerial. The aerial as mutual aid from a neighboring uh, volunteer fire department. At 7.28, aerial was en route with an officer and five firefighters. When the aerial unit arrived at 7.36, the crew observed minimal white-gray smoke coming from the top and moderate from the bottom. The incident commander directed the aerial to a position next to the silo on the north side. IC and two mutual aid officers, Another mutual aid officer had previously arrived on scene via private vehicle at 725. They had a brief discussion and decided to extend the aerial to determine the structure at the top of the silo and conditions within the silo. Both victims from the mutual aid department and another firefighter from the incident commands department, the initial department, went to the top of the silo in the aerial basket and examined the silo's condition for several minutes. The basket was brought down and the firefighters had a conference with command and they reported that they could not see any flame on the surface of the wood chips within the silo due to smoke.
1: No, no mention of a thermal in- imaging camera, I guess. Not I mean, yet. No, you know, interesting. Would have been yeah. an obvious thing to take up with you, I think.
0: Absolutely. Uh, what, 2003? Yeah. I mean, they were getting fairly common. Although, and if they had an aerial, uh, maybe the, uh, at 8:15. Uh, oh, hang on. So at the same time while the area was at the top of the silo, several firefighters attempted to unload burning wood chips from the auger pit using shovels and small baskets. Two positive pressure ventilation fans were placed on the west side of the auger pit doors to remove smoke coming from underneath the silo. The fans were blowing smoke out so entry could be made from the east the manual unloading and the use of the fans was abandoned after several minutes due to lack of progress. Must be like massive amounts of, of uh, wood wood chips, right? The auger and other equipment at the base of the silo could not be used to unload the silo since the drive belt had been damaged by the fire and the metal was warped from the intense heat. The electrical, electrical supply was also shut off for the lockout, which is good. Don't want anybody getting caught in it. At 8.15, the IC uh, requested equipment truck for mutual aid with the same neighboring department since SCBA bottles were beginning to run low. They had a cascade system on the equipment truck for filling bottles, and it arrived on scene uh, at 8.24 with four firefighters. Upon arrival, command ordered the truck to park on the east side of the silo in the parking lot. Ah, here we go. Incident command used a thermal imaging camera to locate hotspots on the exterior concrete surface. Oh, on the outside, the concrete was hot. They were identified on the east and west side, about 15 feet from the ground, and were beginning to grow in size. The IC de- decided to flow water into the top of the silo via the aerial. The engine supplied water to the aerial with a 3-inch line. Victim 1, 2, and a firefighter number 1 went to the top of the silo in the basket. Victim number one and firefighter one exited the basket onto the top of the silo. Victim number two remained in the basket. Made a hose connection to the platform water supply and ran a 50 foot section of inch and a half hose with an inch and a half distributing nozzle around the top of the silo. Again, uh, just going to put more air in. The firefighter... Just
1: just a reminder, Paul, that uh, they estimated there was about 21 feet of chips in the silo to start with, and the tick indicated hotspots at the 15-foot level.
0: So, I mean, that that pile was pretty well burning. The uh, firefighter number one lowered the hose into the access hole just as it was being charged. They sprayed water for about 5 to 10 minutes and estimated less than 1,500 gallons were pumped into the silo. At the base of the silo, the firefighters had opened a small exterior side hatch. They were pulling wood chips from the hatch, inserting a piercing nozzle supplied by an inch and three-quarter hand line from the engine. The hatch was located below a large hot spot observed with the tick. A firefighter was using a pipe pole to make a path for the piercing nozzle, and another firefighter was inserting the ten-foot piercing nozzle into the hatch through the wood chips. Another firefighter was assisting with the hose. Firefighters were alternating positions during this operation, and another firefighter was behind them, manning a charged inch and three-quarter line as a backup.
1: So essentially, they're using structural far-fetting techniques here.
0: Basically, like through
2: a wall or something, but you're into a pile. How was, how high has the heat to be so you can see basic color on your tick on a concrete structure? And you were saying like with the other um, with the other silo, like how thick is this? Like it's like, it's got
0: to be six inches at least at least maybe more so yeah
2: yeah, it's crazy that they uh they would attempt to do anything there they could just close it up
1: my my guess is um we're missing a whole lot on the command side uh the the decisions you've got you've got the uh the manufacturer there of, of the facility who's highly concerned about losing his entire facility if this fire starts emitting burning embers and so forth so I'm, I'm pretty sure that they're there going you got to do something to save you know the facility ensure that that doesn't happen and then you, you may have uh, complacency on what, it's probably not the right word but success on previous incidents because they've responded here several times in the past to uh, you know uh, dustbin fires and other silos and and uh you know so they've, they've used some successful techniques in the past and 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 then maybe what they think is an understanding of what's going on there possibly without likely without any specific training in this particular silo plus this silo was not being operated as intended by its design so you had a number of things going on there and if, if you're not running a, a good tight incident command system where you've got people doing planning and research uh, but you're tending more to 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 rely on you know um, you know that slide set in your head. If, if I do this that will happen because I've seen that happen before and and you're missing a few slides what can happen is is you'll end up in a situation where you do exactly the wrong thing and as we will find out, that's where they were.
0: This this plays exactly into uh, Dr. Rich Gasaway's situational awareness uh, presentation. He I met him a couple weeks ago. He was up here at the Lakeland College, actually. And, of course, I showed all the students, which uh, they hadn't seen before the uh, – um, Gordon Graham's, uh, you know, high-risk, low-frequency event, and then this is it, right? There's a video, actually, Abbotsford Fire had a, a wood chip silo explode on him about 10, 12 years ago, and there was a good video on YouTube showing it all of a sudden, uh, you know, same kind of tactics here, and all of a sudden, boom, the thing exploded. But this way, way after, of course, this happened. In yeah, California.
2: and that was one on the outside. That was really that dust explosion. You could really see, like, how that, how that all happened there, yeah. Recognition, time, decision making—that was
0: yeah. Like, recognition, yeah, time, decision about about making. Right. Yeah, Gasaway. Uh,
1: but you've got to also under—I think that's really, really important points. But the hard, you know, the first level of, of of hazmat training and any other training is the awareness level, right, Dirk? The first thing you learn is awareness. Yeah. <laughs> when you're wading into the swamp full of crocodiles, you don't have to be able to deal with the swamp. Or deal with the crocodiles you just got to be aware that that's what's going on so then you pick up the phone or your computer and start researching into the right things to do but if you're not even aware that you're in a swamp full of crocodiles then anything you do after that is going to turn out one of two ways we're, we're the fire department what do we
0: do we come yeah. to put out fires okay yeah. we're going to put out fires
1: yeah horseshoe yeah. lucky or sad
0: okay the incident commander uh, instructed the aerial crew to change the nozzle to a straight bore and spray water to the southeast section of the silo based on the glow, growing hotspots. Victim number two shut the water off and uh, shut the water off, firefighter, and he pulled the hose out of the silo. He recalls the smoke was yellowish and remember hearing a whooshing sound followed by a loud boom. At the base of the silo, a sudden burst of wood chips and smoke came out the hatch. It was described by firefighters like a jet engine taking off. Other firefighters on the scene reported hearing a sucking sound or a strange expanding-like rush.
1: So what do those sounds remind you of from your training? Backdraft.
0: Exactly. Yeah, for sure. It sounds exactly like a backdraft. Right. You just you introduced, a, introduced right. oxygen.
1: Right. You get a sudden overpressure followed by a sudden under pressure. And in yep. this case, probably a whole lot of dust explosion leading situation afterwards.
0: Exactly. Yep. No. Very good point. Um, the, uh, explosion occurred, uh, oh, the silos, Were uh, thrown to the uh, firefighters, several firefighters at the base of the silo near the hatch were thrown to the ground from the force of the blast.
1: They felt felt the ground shaking.
0: Yeah, they felt the ground shaking and a concussion.
1: That's a big bang.
0: The explosion occurred at the silo at approximately 850 hours. The top of the silo blew off and landed to the west. Victim one and two and firefighter one were thrown from the top of the silo and the aerial basket and were thrown approximately 70 feet onto the ground. Victim number one was found near the basket of a front-end loader uh, parked near the base of the silo. Victim number two was found at the base of the west side of the silo, and firefighter one fell into a garbage-filled dumpster which helped break his fall.
1: Man, was he lucky.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Debris rained down on the scene, injuring eight firefighters and two lumber company employees after the debris had settled. The firefighters recall hearing multiple pass alarms, personal alerts going. The incident command ordered an accountability check and radioed for rescue units to come to the scene. Firefighters on the scene immediately began administering first aid to the injured. Victim 1 and 2 were transported to regional hospitals via ambulance where they were later pronounced dead. A helicopter pronounced, transported Firefighter 1 and another firefighter injured by the by the um, blast and uh, to a regional trauma center. Incident command had one firefighter hospitalized with a broken foot and four firefighters treated and released from emergency. Firefighter one was hospitalized with a broken arm and leg. Two other firefighters from the mutual aid department were seen and released in the emergency room. Two plant employees from the lumber company were also hospitalized.
1: So the firefighter that was thrown from the roof and landed in the dumpster got a broken leg and a broken arm. Wow. Could have been worse.
0: A lot worse, just, I mean, absolute luck.
1: Yeah, he was rush out and buy a lottery ticket that day. (sighs) Yeah. So a little bit on the cause of death, which we've already talked about a little bit for the 1985 incident. And uh, remember there were three fatalities in that one. two uh, firefighters were blown off the roof and one fell into the silo so the cause of the death um, for um, firefighters number two and number three um, which was by the one coroner and the cause of death for the other victim was by a, a separate coroner. Um, so the first two were injuries caused by the explosion um, Not sure what that means. I can think of many types of injuries that explosion would. Blood blood force trauma, I guess. Blood force trauma. You can have overpressure injuries. You can have a bunch of stuff. And for victim um, number one, it was called injuries caused by fall from the silo. So one of the the first two victims, two and three, one fell in the silo, one fell out the silo. And uh, victim number one, who was injuries caused by the fall from the silo, he fell off the silo. So basically the explosion was determined to have been the cause of death for all three.
0: The 2003 incident, the county medical examiner's findings were the cause of death for both victims with blunt force injuries from getting hit by the explosion and landing on the ground, I assume.
1: Right. So now we're gonna talk a little bit about recommendations and uh, some discussion on those. Uh, Paul, are these from NIOSH reports? These recommendations? Yes, so our
0: Fire Administration uh, for the eighty-five one okay,
1: U.S. So, Fire Administration. So FEMA, right? So are they still up to date? Paul,
0: these are the latest published uh, accounts that uh, FEMA or uh, sorry, Fire U.S. Fire Administration and NIOSH had. Okay. The one so had been updated. I'm not sure which had been updated a few years ago.
1: Right. So for the uh, 85, pardon me for the 1985 incident so that's the, the triple fatality um, recommendation number one stated that during firefighting operations, water should not be directed into a fire through the top hatches of an oxygen-limiting silo. And so a little bit about that. a fire in oxygen-limiting silos can potentially be very hazardous since explosive gases can be contained. So these are a non-ventilated silo, essentially. Any increase in oxygen may place the gases within their explosive range. Uh, One method of fighting this type of fire that has met with success in the past involves the injection of liquid nitrogen, which of course would then gasify and blanket or what what they sometimes call um, uh, inerting will inert the, the inside of the silo and then the fire, You know, think of your fire triangle, fuel, heat, oxygen. Uh, so if you take the oxygen away, then the fire will go out. So so one, one, um, one method to attack these ty- fires is injecting liquid nitrogen or injecting carbon dioxide into the silo to extinguish the fire. Um, manufacturers of oxygen limiting silos normally have instructions Uh, to accompany their silos on how to deal with fires. Uh, Further information can also be obtained uh, by Googling a bulletin called extinguishing silo fires uh, published by the Northeast Regional Agricultural Engineering Service. I should also say. I didn't go look
0: and see if that's still available.
1: Yeah. I I should also say that you Google extinguishing silo fires, you're going to get pages of information. Right. So these are not abnormal events. They happen all the time.
2: So, so, so for the department. recommendation again, like any silo fire, or, well, in general, any fire, we don't want to fight a fire from above. You don't want to work above the fire. That's why we say. Any house fire could be the basement, could be the, uh, the attic, right? We don't want to go up there, but it seems like, oh, there's a silo. Oh, let's check what's burning from the top and I, I I remember um that the fire department I know responded to a silo um I'm not sure if it was a fire I wasn't there all I know is that they went up to the top of the silo opened the hatch and two guys got knocked down by the carbon monoxide that's obviously in these uh, areas. areas they weren't messed up because nobody thought of that right so again kind of like for me as I, again I have zero skin in the game when it comes to silos or silo fires uh, don't go up there you just if you can work from the bottom but not from the top because you're above the fire
1: so, Is that so kind that, of- yeah there are two, there are two two types of silos there's oxygen limiting silos which are intended to be a closed system from the point of view of air and gases moving in and out of them so they generally are pretty safe from the point of view of you can't have fires because there's not supposed to be any air oxygen. In other words, in the silo. Um, and Then there are um, the other type of silo, which are sent essentially ventilated silos. And these are the ones you most commonly see on farms. And, and you'll see the ladder on the outside has got kind of a, like a chute built around it and you climb up inside. Uh, and there are all these doors, hatches every, I don't know, every six or eight or 10 feet or whatever, and you pull the hatches off and that's how you unload this. When you need silage, you go up to the top of wherever the silage is, you pull that door off and you, you fork out a bunch of silage, it falls down the chute at the bottom and that's how you get access to it. So these, these ones are not airtight by any means whatsoever and you have to Uh, approach those in a completely different manner they're not the same at all they're not going to build up huge vast quantities of of uh, combustible gases they don't have the same properties when they're burning as a air limiting silo so or an oxygen limiting silo so so yeah you got to know what's a duck and what's a goose right when you go to these things Um, so they're they're not all the same and you got to have you got to have an understanding of what you're dealing with and and I think I think that's where recommendation two comes in. Recommendation two says, when not being filled or emptied, so in other words, when you're not loading the silo from that hatch near the top, and you're not emptying it by opening the auger pit door at the bottom, so which obviously the silo is open at those points in time. um, So in an oxygen limiting silo is properly sealed, Um, when not being filled or emptied, the silo hatches should be kept closed and you must do proper maintenance on the silo. So that should be performed to ensure the integrity of the oxygen limiting features. This is going to come up, Paul, when you talk about the 2004 incident. So if an oxygen limiting silo is properly sealed, there's very little likelihood of fire occurring by spontaneous heating. You can still get the heating, and you'll still get gas generation. And you don't wanna go in there because it's a IDLH, immediately dangerous life or health, confined space, but you're not likely to have fire because there's insufficient oxygen to support a fire. Right. So the manufacturer of the silo, if you're in any doubt about this, should be contacted for proper operating and maintenance procedures for the, for the silo. So if you're the farmer or the wood chip guy who owns a silo, you should know how to operate that silo before you start operating it, right? I would also suggest that know your fire district, you should know how to deal with incidents in silos of that type and be able to recognize them as you're driving down the road, which I can do, and I'm sure you can do too, once you know what to look for. Additionally, further information on minimizing the possibility of a silo fire can be, again, same. by Googling things like extinguishing silo fires that we had already referenced previously.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I, hey, I'm guilty of it too, because I was a firefighter, eventually officer here in, in Lacombe, and we have silos all over the place and rural agricultural, dairy farms, etc. cetera. And uh, we didn't have any adequate pre-plans or training on what to do. And I retired from here in 2013, from this fire department and then, uh, didn't have as many out in Clearwater, not as, not as, uh, as uh, much agriculture, but anyway, and I, you know, didn't do it, which is But bad. at least
1: at, at least an evening, you know, every few years on a, on an awareness level, yep. I think is your step one, right? Like don't, don't step in that because it's not good. Exactly. You know, at least, at least learn one. that and, and who to call.
0: Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> In 2003, the recommendations were similar to what we've already been talking about. Uh, Recommendation one says train officers and firefighters on the hazards associated with different types of silos and the appropriate firefighting tactics. The thing around here in central Alberta, getting a truckload of carbon dioxide or a truckload of nitrogen is really easy because they use nitrogen for everything, all kinds of pipeline purging and tank purging and stuff. So uh, a person could get that fairly Fairly quickly 24 7, 365. Uh, all you need to know is you know, who to call. So, uh, you know, critical information was not established during the size up or determined in their pre plan that this silo was a modified oxygen limiting silo. The IC had successfully fought a silo fire in the past at the lumber company, however, that fire was in a conventional silo. The tactics and strategies used by firefighters in this incident uh, were, uh, you know, was was modified and it should have been treated as oxygen limiting by firefighters. The two types you talked about already, I won't cover that, um, and oxygen limiting need to be sealed. Both types of fa- silos can be found on farms, sawmills, critical firefighters to realize the type of silo beginning, prior to beginning firefighting operations. This silo no longer had the tightly sealed soft top hatches, hence modified oxygen limiting. The amount of oxygen entering the silo was significant to initiate, one, the fire, and two, propagate it more uh, as it burned through the wood chips, which has, you know, unlimited amount of combustible fuel, basically. All it needed was oxygen. It had everything it needed to do it. It had the heat. It had the fuel. SOGs for oxygen-limiting silo fires. That was the other recommendation number two. If you have silos, you should have an SOG that people can be trained on and you can follow to try to minimize the chance of of a a low-frequency, high-risk event that's going to result in in line-of-duty deaths. Confirming pre-plans. Do not direct water or foam through top hatches. Dirk, you talked about that already. Why are you on top of this fire? Why are you above the fire? Uh, And of course, will allow oxygen to enter and cause backdraft-like explosion of fire gases. Do not enter, breach, or open any external hatches in an attempt to extinguish the fire. If the top hatches are open, firefighters should not close them. If there's smoke coming out of the top, especially if the side road is vibrating or making unusual sounds because you're making a pressure vessel, right? You just made a pressure vessel. It's like a sea can, like that fatality in BC and Enderby where the, the, the sea can was not on fire. It was beside the fire. There was very little fuel in the sea can. It got warmed up from the building beside it and the doors blew open and killed the captain that happened to be standing in the path of the doors. You're making a pressure vessel. Lockout, tagout. they did that in the one. Roof hatches should be safe to close if it's quiet for several days and there's no smoke coming from the hatches. Should be closed but not securely to prevent relief of pressure. Leave the silo closed up for up to three weeks or until the fire consumes all the oxygen and it self extinguishes establish a collapse zone keep unauthorized personnel away from the area in case of an explosion some silos have external valves to inject carbon dioxide or liquid nitrogen from compressed gas cylinders to extinguish the fire if the silo continues to burn seek assistance from the manufacturer just like if your tesla's burning seek assistance dirk
2: yeah that was just crossing my mind with the uh carbon dioxide Uh, would that be a requirement for a for the silo um, operator to have this on site or would that be something that the fire department has to get uh, along the pre-planning because that's I mean where you get it from and in the short short term how much do we need because that's a big silo I mean 73 foot tall 20 foot in diameter that that's a lot of space I mean less, less what you have in there but to inert it with the it, gas, like Where it, do you it get al- it
0: from? Well, in Alberta, it'd be easy because there's liquid nitrogen trucks all over the place because they use it a lot for uh, oil field, hazardous materials, chemical plant yep. operations. So, uh, you know, you can phone numerous companies, uh, but Liquid Air is one, for example, to bring a truckload over, but, you know, it's going to be ours.
1: Yeah, yeah but, but, but the answer to this is one word, pre-planning.
0: Yes, yep, <laughs> yep.
1: No, that's a possibility. Have somebody on speed dial. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Dispatch.
2: Dispatch knows everything, right? That's what we say. Well, we need a backhoe. Call dispatch. We need a backtrack. Call dispatch. We need more lumber. Just call dispatch.
1: And, and honestly, I think you'd be surprised. I don't think the volume is that great. I mean, you're, you're, you're going to hook your hose up to the side of it. You're going to open your hatches on top. You're going to fill it full of carbon dioxide or, or nitrogen or nit- and on, until you got it flowing out the top, close the hatches, go home. I'll see you in a month. You know, I, I, I think you, you may want to leave it a small volume continuously going in there for leakage, but I I, th- I don't think it'd be huge. I think a single axle truck would do it. You know, You're not talking some
0: yeah, because remember the 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 liquid oxygen nitrogen is is liquefied. It's there's a lot in there, right? It's the same as a propane cylinder. You know, one propane cylinder will do a lot.
1: I'd, I'd 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 use carbon dioxide just because it's so much easier. It and, is and, yeah. and, and more available. Um, you just just go down to the local brewery, Dirk, and uh, hijack a yeah. truck.
0: Yeah, the distillery, the brewery. Well, <laughs> I like it. I'll never leave. <laughs> or,
1: or, your local, or your local Coke distributor because they're or bottler because they, they got carbon dioxide trucks sitting there. So I'd be um, sitting there. It's like, why did
2: I come here? I
1: forgot. <laughs> <laughs> or yeah. get, get a few two-fours and throw them in the top, you know.
0: Good point. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Uh, the, uh, you know, fire department should ensure the pre-emergency planning is completed for silos within their jurisdictions. If you've got a particular risk, uh, you know, you need to you need to, to plan for it. But I remember uh, trying to sell the aerial truck concept to the county here. Now, Lacombe County is a fairly uh intense agricultural uh area lots of good soil there's lots of greenhouses and dairy farms and all huge riding stables huge buildings and i went around the county and took pictures of all these places and went to the you know gave it to the fire chief to build his case i actually did a powerpoint presentation and the county said what do we need a ladder truck for we don't want a ladder truck. We don't need a ladder truck. And all the all the city was asking for him was to sign a a grant application to do it together and get get a hundred grand from the government. And the county didn't want to sign. And one of the first second year we had the ladder truck, we had a huge machinery shed, concrete tilt up building that was combination potato storage, et cetera. And we brought the ladder truck out to it and it actually saved the building because it was part of the roof had collapsed and we were able to get water in the truss spaces and and stop the fire and put a stop to it and save it. And the county was still saying, you know, we don't need it. But the pre-planning is, is the problem. There's a Canadian company, just so our people know, that does pre-planning software out of Ottawa called APX. And they have a wonderful software package that you can do pre-planning on your on your iPad. It's super easy. It uses Google Maps, and and you can go and identify your hazards at least, and and who to contact. You can add that in there if you look at the tag on the on the silo, and probably pop it in there as a picture. And you can phone them when you're on a call. The stuff's out there. It's just having the time to do it. Number four, facilities with oxygen limiting silos should ensure proper operation and maintenance. Very important. That may have been a problem in this uh, lumber yard because they'd modified the, the silo and and it wasn't maintained, obviously, because there was a belt and an overheated bearing or something that started a fire. Um, there was LP gas in the bottom. They were probably cooking, probably trying to cut a bearing off. That's why. Why would you have propane in the silo? You're probably trying to loosen a something with heat and started a fire. Hot work. Another often cause of fires, hot work. Yeah. I see Boston is uh, requiring training and a permit for all hot work in the city now. They have people have to take a training course uh, to prevent accidents from hot work.
1: Good initiative enforcing it it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, municipalities consider wiring exterior placards with specific silo information for use during firefighting. I'm just going to breeze over these because we're going, we're going long. Silo manufacturers and research organizations should consider researching causes and mechanisms of silo fires involving wood products and develop engineering approaches to reduce risks to firefighters. This was the state fire marshals report mentions the role of wood products as a secondary cause of the silo explosion. While a backdraft of the byproducts of combustion is a likely cause of the explosion in the incident, there's been no scientific research on silo fires and explosions with wood products or sawdust. Modeling the dynamics of oxygen-limiting fire, silo fires could result in greater understanding of the engineering controls needed for um, for control of these fires. Um, blast panel. There should certainly
1: be a lot of knowledge on Um, dust explosions in bag houses and and ventilation systems and i can't help think when i read this that some of that knowledge um, could be extended to this particular use of a silo because they were basically had a silo it was an oxygen limiting type but that's not how they were using it they were using it as a as a holding tank if you will basically so i think that anything that would have you know, some explosion intervention equipment engineered into it, you know, could have helped in this situation, um, just like there would be on a bag house, for instance. Now, a bag house is a, is, is, is a, is a big boxy building full of filters, you know, where you pull contaminated air through. Uh, and similar thing, highly dusty uh, environment full of combustible particles and oxygen.
0: We're, we're seeing similar stuff with the uh, lithium ion battery storage buildings uh, for energy storage, and that uh, you know, building engineering controls into it to vent mm-hmm. gases, to allow for deflagration panels, stuff like that, to try to let them burn if it happens, because putting them out obviously is a, right. a lost cause. That's where that most so part. have butter. an
1: incident, just don't make it a catastrophic incident. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, unfortunately, it
2: needs an incident or a near miss that. The starting to look into it, as you said, the storage facilities for uh, for the batteries that uh, UL did a uh, I think it was a either a close call or line of duty. Dev, I can't remember. Close close calls in close uh, close surprise call in Arizona. Arizona. Exactly. So that should be an eye opener for for every department that deals with these things. That the problem is, I think uh, companies and even cities they build these things and don't tell the fire department that they even exist. Yeah, honestly, I sense- couldn't tell you if we have these things or not. I mean, it's Alberta, so we probably don't. But
0: <laughs> Yeah, we, we do, but the fire department, yeah. you know, they don't know about it or they don't know how to respond, although it is changing. There's been two or three. There was just one two weeks ago in Idaho, uh, battery uh, energy storage system in Idaho, and uh, the fire department just, you know, they let it burn. They just, you know, we're not going to do anything. We're just going to sit here prevent what we can from extension and uh unfortunately the toxic gases and stuff lead to evacuations and those are but we're learning slowly uh from from yeah you
2: gotta deal with the the situation but you gotta know and and i think for me that even with these silos it's so hard for us as a fighter bomb to not do anything when it comes to suppression efforts right i mean we can do yeah we do the hazmat thing you know we cordon everything off evacuation all the stuff but that's not that's not cool Put right, the fire out! The, Come on, yeah. We gotta put the fire out, right? And that—that's yeah, a tough yeah. to 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 the, the not just the line firefighters, but also to command staff, yeah. right? Then he's doing the
0: that, that he's doing the, that he's, that he's doing the rule of thumb on the camera. There, he says, "Remember the rule of thumb: if your thumb doesn't cover up the hazmat, you're too close." Yeah.
2: <laughs> that's a good rule. Yeah,
1: but so so yeah, going to that, you know, do you know what's in your fire district? Firefighters live everywhere. Half half the career firefighters in Edmonton live out in the rural areas because I won't get into that. But anyways, um, yeah, so that's yeah. be Everywhere. nosy, man. You see something new going on? Uh, get out your badge, walk in, and say, "I need to look around. Uh, I'd like to be familiar if there's hazards here that that might affect you know my life and how we would deal with an incident here." And yeah, but I I want to watch take that uh, back to your planning and your fire prevention people.
0: But I want to watch TSN and uh, you know in the Lazy Boy after lunch, okay, you know, or okay. play pickleball. Don't and, be like that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I play pickleball. I gotta yeah, find out. Maybe talking
2: on your spare time when you're driving into your bedroom community. That's Look what I'm you. talking about. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And then good firefighters do this. Good firefighters they they pre-plan. You're never off
1: duty. Never off right? duty.
2: But it's it's also from you mentioned Edmonton. It's a big department, uh, same as like Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto. Try to change something in Toronto, and, right, and convince people, hey, don't put out the fire, or hey, I want you to bring a sixty-five line into a high-rise building. It's like what? Sixty-five? You know,
0: That's way too heavy to carry. What are you talking exactly. about? Exactly.
2: And then that those are the problems that smaller departments have. That advantage. Of uh, being able to do this because there's less bureaucracy, there's less management. Oh, involved. I'm
1: glad you think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, no, I, I hope, I hope it
2: would be that you way. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly.
1: everything's yeah. scalable. Just so you know.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's just harder. <laughs> uh, less yeah. resources to do it yeah. with, but but the timeline is also scalable. If it takes you a year, a big department takes ten years. But
0: right? departments can change. Unfortunately, it's often due to events. Yeah. If we look at london or the uk buying tall aerials responding aerials to high-rises which they didn't used to do but after grenfell tower now they do that look at toronto toronto had a huge fire on the 401 of a, a petrochemical tanker or something and they had to call the airport and everybody else to come foam it down toronto bought a foam truck wow you know uh they bought a 230 foot bronto i had to get that in there Dirk you knew it um you know because hey they're preparing for their risks And that's what we need to do. But it needs to go top to bottom, uh, bottom to top in the whole organization. And this is preparing for risk silos.
2: Okay, cool.
0: All right. Thanks everybody for listening to another emergency traffic podcast. We appreciate your interest and hope that you find them interesting and informative. Give us a star, a like, a thumbs up, on whatever app you use to listen to us with. It means a lot to us and the algorithms that uh, promote our podcasts amongst the uh, various listeners. You can follow us on Podcast Traffic on Twitter uh, or our Facebook page, the Emergency Traffic Podcast.
2: Be safe, be nice. Stay low and go.
0: Right on. And what did uh, uh, there was a quote from brunascini this week or last week. It was, uh, if you think training is expensive, wait till you have a line of duty death. Uh, So, no, don't wait. Listen to our podcast and train. Do better. All right. Excellent.